Good morning. Let's get started. We have some time for questions at the end. Pray. Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for being kind, good, and gracious to us. Thank you for your word that uh, you reveal uh, your plan, uh, certainly for uh, the end of ages and for the future. And just thankful for that. Help us to understand uh, all that we uh, look at this morning, and apply it to our hearts to encourage and to correct any um, misunderstandings we might have about these things that we will look at this morning. Just thank you for loving us, for your church, and pray that all that we do today would glorify and honor you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at a couple of <clears throat> uh, topics in eschatology, which is the study of the basically the end times, the last things <clears throat> at the end of the ages. And there's, there's so many things that can be covered, and I've just picked a few uh, to go over, and it will be a real fast um, flight over these things. All of it uh, requires a great deal of study, in-depth study, to, to have a full appreciation and understanding of the things that we're going to look at this morning, I just basically introduce you to this morning. So first we're going to look at uh, the millennial uh, kingdom and then the final kingdom, or the eternal state, which is uh, found in Revelation uh, 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, Revelation 19 and 20 reveals the millennial kingdom of Christ where he reigns on earth and um, this is prior to the eternal state or the eternal kingdom. I'm going to read a fairly long passage here that speaks about uh, the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. So if you want to turn there as I read through it, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. It describes the second coming of Jesus. He returns in power, returns in glory, and he destroys all of his enemies. So, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet 
who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is an awesome picture of Christ and his return and the coming judgment for for Satan and his minions and for unbelievers as well. It's a terrifying picture, certainly for those that do not know Christ. An awesome picture for those that do. One of the big things that you see in this passage is a uh, fulfillment of the promise to the coming Davidic king, which we know is Jesus. That's, in, that's from Psalm uh, 2, Second Psalm, verses 7 through 9. And you see that repeated in the passage that I just read. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So that passage in Revelation, you see the partial fulfillment of that, that messianic uh, psalm. Then in Revelation 20, 1 through 9, Christ's kingdom uh, is on earth. It's a millennial kingdom. It's revealed in that passage. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, Satan, that ancient serp serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So just a brief summary of all the points in that passage. Satan, bound for a thousand years, he has no influence on earth during that time, unable to deceive or work his wicked influence on individuals. Uh, there are positions of kingdom authority that are given to God's people, also to the martyred saints who are included certainly as God's people. And those uh, that are martyred during the tribulation are resurrected and also reign with Christ during that thousand years, and the rest of the dead are resurrected at the end of the thousand-year uh, kingdom. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released. Uh, he leads a rebellion, a final rebellion uh, against um, King Jesus, 
and he is defeated by fire from heaven. And a whole section of scripture from Revelation 19.11 to 21.9 should be understood uh, as occurring in chronological order. Uh, some um, theologians uh, view these things as out of order and um, symbolic and interpreted metaphorically. We would hold that the things that are revealed are, in fact, chronological order and, for the most part, are literally fulfilled. Robert Mounts, who's a well-known Greek scholar, says that the recurring, and I saw, it appeared over and over again, of chapters 19 through 21, appears to establish a sequence of visions which carries through from the appearance of the rider on the white horse in 1911 to the new heaven and the new earth in 21.1. So as you read through Revelation, particularly those passages, um, view them from the perspective of happening, happening in chronological order, time order. So let's look at a few details from the passages. First, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, describes the binding of Satan. He's bound, restrained, thrown into a pit, the abyss, and the pit is sealed over. This pit or abyss is, in fact, a real place. It is essentially a spiritual prison. And while he's imprisoned, he no longer has any influence on the earth. Uh, 23 says he will no longer deceive the nations, and this is because he no longer has access to the nations. He doesn't have access uh, to the earth. So for the first time in history, mankind will no longer be subject to Satan's deception or influence. His imprisonment uh, should be understood as a complete termination of his influence rather than merely curbing his influence. And also the binding of Satan uh, should be understood as happening after the return of Christ rather than before, and which is not the opinion of um, all believers, all theologians or Bible teachers. But uh, happening after the return of Christ uh, rather than before is supported by a number of passages. Second uh, Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, all of those passages from um, three different apostles indicate that Satan is, is extremely active in the present church age prior to the second coming. Some, of, some people see Satan's binding in the present age um, because of Christ's victory over Satan on the cross, um, but even though that was a, a real victory, an ultimate victory, the battle does continue between God and Satan until he is finally thrown into uh, the lake of fire in Revelation 20.10. We say at the end of that thousand years he's released. Uh, 20.10 says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan is bound for a thousand years, and Revelation 24 speaks about the reign of God's people. 
uh, during that thousand years, reigning with Christ. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the word thrones uh, indicates a kingdom reign which involves ruling and judging things that kings do. And it indicates that this will be by more than one person because of the use of the plural form of thrones, more than one. Uh, who exactly are the ones who are sitting on the thrones? doesn't say specifically. Likely it is the army of believers uh, that return with Christ at the second coming, Revelation 19, which is likely the church and uh, believers who are promised earlier to rule with Christ over the nations. You see that in Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So these promises are likely fulfilled in Revelation 24. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The text also says that there is this other group that will be reigning. Those are the martyred uh, saints during the tribulation period. One passage that describes the thousand-year reign is Isaiah 11 especially verses 6 through 10, what this thousand-year millennial kingdom will be like. And there are a number of other passages in Isaiah, but this one in particular you are, I'm pretty sure, familiar with. Uh, Isaiah 11, 6 through 10, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, earth, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, Shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So then at the end of this thousand years, Satan is released, and, and he leads one last rebellion, as mentioned earlier, and that's Revelation 27 through 10. And there's a huge number of people that join Satan in that rebellion. It says they numbered like the sands of the sea. Well, that's quite a bit. And... Um, and then it shows that there, you know, this passage also shows that there will be unbelievers in the millennial kingdom. Um, it was most likely those that are born during that time uh, that don't submit to Christ's rule. They are unregenerate. Uh, while only believers enter into the millennial kingdom at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, children are born to believing parents. But this doesn't guarantee their salvation. It's really no different from today in that respect. 
And even without Satan's influence, they don't follow Christ. I want to read a section from Michael Vlock's book, He Will Reign Forever. Uh, Michael Vlock was a professor down at Master's Seminary for a long time. Um, uh, It says this, Even with the presence of Satan's influence removed and the glorious reign of Jesus present, some refuse to believe. Outward conformity to the reign of Christ during the millennium gives way to overt rebellion for some when Satan is released and the opportunity exists for unbelievers to flock to their spiritual father, the devil. Though for a brief season, the divine restraint will be relaxed for the purpose of providing one last and supreme demonstration of the appalling wickedness of the unregenerate human heart. It's difficult to grasp how some people could remain in unbelief with the visible and reigning Jesus in their midst, but when has sin ever made sense? Why did Satan sin after being in God's presence? Why did most of Israel reject Jesus at his first coming? So the rebellion after the millennium testifies that man's problem isn't environmental or lack of evidence or bad upbringing. The problem is man's heart. Even with perfect conditions in society during that millennial kingdom, some will rebel against God if their hearts are not changed. But The rebellion is very short-lived when God destroys those rebels with fire from heaven. It's really more like a justified execution than a battle. There's really no match for God's power. There's not even an army in the picture. Uh, Just God's judgment poured out and the annihilation of those rebels. And then Satan, the beast, and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire forever, and this is followed by the great white throne judgment after which unbelievers are also thrown into the lake of fire. And then after this final judgment, the new heaven and the new earth is ushered in. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 is the culmination of God's final and eternal kingdom. And since the fall in the garden, God's aim has always been to restore creation through Jesus with the perfect fulfillment of the kingdom mandate, which is found in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which was to rule and subdue the earth. And God's will in the new heaven and new earth is now being done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has ruled on earth until all of his enemies have been subdued with the final defeat of Satan, but Christ's reign doesn't end so much as it now merges with the Father's kingdom and rule. Both the Father and Jesus are seen on the throne in the eternal state. Uh, Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. 
and in the eternal state, all three relationships that man was placed in in the garden are now fully restored. They are untainted by sin in the eternal state. Man is in a right relationship with God. Man is in perfect relationship with other humans. And man is in a restored relationship with the rest of all of creation. So it's a full restoration of the original creation. Now, on that note, I want to address an issue here, and that's the, the new heaven and the new earth language in Revelation. Those terms are first used in Isaiah 65, 17, and Isaiah 66, 22. And it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So in the Isaiah passages, after the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, everything's really wonderful, but there's still sin and there's still death in the millennial kingdom. And that is completely inconsistent with the eternal state where there is no sin and death, where it speaks about the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation, no sin and death, referring to the eternal state. So how do those passages that speak about the new heaven and new earth in Isaiah and then in Revelation get reconciled where there appears to be some discrepancies? So um, the question is, does Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 refer to the millennial kingdom or does it refer to the eternal state. So a couple of uh, theologians have um, come up with a solution. Um, one possibility is that the Isaiah passages actually merge the new heaven and new earth with an intermediate stage of the kingdom where death and rebellion are still present. In other words, the millennium is not seen as a separate dispensation or era from the eternal state, but it's more of an initial phase or a preview of the eternal state. One commentator describes the millennial kingdom as the first fruits of the eternal state. The millennial kingdom is like a preview of the eternal messianic kingdom that will be fully revealed in the eternal state. So assuming that this does resolve the seeming discrepancy, it's clear that the millennial kingdom and the eternal state do share some distinct similarities, but also some differences. And this is just a short list of those similarities and differences. This is from Michael Clock's book again. Number one, the millennial kingdom focuses on Christ's reign in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, while in the eternal state, the Father and Son directly rule together. Number two, in both the millennial and eternal kingdom, nations are under Christ's rule, but in the former, they can still sin, and in the eternal, they don't. Uh, number three, righteousness and justice characterize both kingdoms, <clears throat> but as with the nations, there is still sin in the millennial kingdom, but not in the eternal. Number four, the curse on the ground is lifted in both, but in the eternal, uh, in the eternal kingdom, uh, that's lifted fully, finally, and permanently. And then number five, there is still death in the millennial kingdom, not in the eternal. Number six, in the millennial kingdom, there is a physical temple, but in the eternal, uh, in the eternal God and the Lamb are the temple. 
And number seven, in the millennial kingdom, there is marriage and birth, but in the eternal, there is not. So, however we work that out, the, the discrepancies between the passages in Isaiah, passages in Revelation, referring to what appears to be the millennial kingdom and then the eternal state, um, it, it will certainly all work out in the end. So, another question to resolve, because there is some disagreement on the next point, is whether the new heaven and the new earth are restorations and renewals of the old earth and heaven, or does it involve the total destruction and annihilation of the old with a new recreation out of nothing, as in the beginning? Scripture actually does seem to portray restoration and renewal much more strongly. And here's some of the reasoning for that position. First of all, renewal and restoration is overall more consistent with the biblical storyline. God's original creation was declared very good in Genesis 1.31. Man was supposed to rule and subdue the earth, but sin brought a curse on that creation. However, early on, a deliverer is promised who will defeat uh, Satan and reverse the effects of that curse. So there is hope for restoration. Then in Acts 3.21, speaks of the restoring of all things, and that would include everything in creation. doesn't say annihilation or recreation, restoration. And there's also the argument that if God has to destroy the current heaven and earth because of the curse and the effect of sin, then Satan will have won a great victory. And a second argument for restoration is in Romans 8, 20 through 21, for the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that would uh, seem to show that creation itself longs for renewal. Uh, longs for restoration, not annihilation. It was hope, uh, it has hope of being set free from the effects of the curse. Because where would be the hope in annihilation, wipe out all of creation and start all over? Um, third argument is that the future of creation, the new heaven and the new earth is parallel uh, to mankind. And the future for regenerated man is physical res uh, resurrection and restoration, not annihilation. And just as fallen man will be restored and glorified, so creation will be restored and glorified. And then fourth, most of the biblical language indicates renewal and restoration. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the term new world in this passage literally means in the regeneration. And then Colossians 1:16 and 20 says that Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. And reconciliation indicates a restoration, not annihilation and recreation. And then here's what uh, Randy Alcorn says about the issue. He wrote a great book entitled Heaven, which I would recommend uh, for reading. He says, God has never given up on his original creation, yet somehow we've managed to overlook an entire biblical vocabulary that makes this point clear. <clears throat> Reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, 
return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. Each one of those biblical words begins with the prefix re, which suggests a return to an original condition that was ruined or lost. Now, on the other hand, those that hold to the annihilation and recreation position often cite 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, which says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So they argue that the language uh, here indicates total wiping out of existence and recreation, but the restoration view uh, sees the language as similar to uh, the judgment of the world in Noah's day. Second Peter 3.6 says that the world perished or was destroyed by the flood, but it wasn't annihilated. The flood didn't completely destroy uh, the world. It purified it. So the coming judgment by fire will also purify rather than wipe the world out of existence. And in fact, the word that's translated as burned up in 2 Peter 3.10 is actually uh, better translated and often translated as will be found or laid bare. So in the context of the passage, it means that the works of men will be laid bare or exposed before God. And this fiery judgment language, and it's also used in 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So annihilation is definitely not the idea in that passage. Now, Richard Middleton, another theologian and commentator, explains Second Peter 3.10 in this way. The judgment by by fire in 2 Peter 3.10 is not purely destructive, but instead may be understood as a smelting process by which the dross of human sinfulness is burned off so that found means something like standing the test or showing one's metal. The fire of judgment might then be compared to a foundry where metals are melted down and reshaped as useful products, or they may be seen as strengthening and purifying, but not annihilating. So again, um, I would argue that the restoration view seems to be the stronger and has more biblical support than annihilation and recreation. Now, uh, finally, I want to go over a few things about the new heaven and earth. Uh, Revelation 21, 24 through 26 by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So this is speaking about the eternal state. And the fact that nations are mentioned indicates that there will be uh, national entities in the new heavens and earth. Nations will be restored. 
and that's further uh, support for the dispensational position that Israel itself will be restored uh, in a literal fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And the fact of national entities, also supported by the mention of their kings, uh, it says they will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, and glory is probably a reference to uh, cultural contributions in the form of art, music, literature, agriculture, industry, etc. So in the eternal state, in the new heaven and earth, it's reasonable to assume that uh, we're going to engage in many of the same creative and industrious um, pursuits and activities that we do now, but without sin, without pride, without selfishness, it'll all be for the glory of God the Father and Jesus who will be ruling in that eternal kingdom, ruling directly among us in a newly restored and renovated um, heaven and earth. And then a final note, heaven and earth will be one unified entity, which is indicated in Revelation 21, 2, and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. In Scripture, heaven is always um, seen as the dwelling place of God. The earth is the dwelling place of man. In the eternal state, those two are unified. God dwells with man who is on earth. So heaven and earth unified in the eternal state. That's all I'm going to cover this morning. Any questions? Any questions about anything in eschatology? And I'll refer you to Phil over there to answer the questions. because He's going to be doing a long series um, for small group. Yeah. No, you, you you do, in in the in the um, the rapture, says all believers are resurrected, and those who are on the earth and those who have died. I would assume so, since they are there now, and they interact on earth now, so there would be no reason to think not. Anything else? So I can't answer that question fully. So I have my understanding, <clears throat> the New Jerusalem, okay, is the New Jerusalem 
we dwell there. But outside of Jerusalem, the rest of creation is, is also renewed and restored. And, uh, and, and I don't know how to address that, the question about those who are outside the gate. Um, I would have to go back and do some reading on that, more study. I remember reading about it, and I did have an opinion, but because I'm old, I forget things, and so I would have to go back and refresh. Anything else? Okay, well, we're done then. You're dismissed.